Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you the latest military, diplomatic and political updates from Ukraine and across the world. And we sit down with Evgenia Karamuza. Evgenia is a Russian human rights activist and wife of political prisoner Vladimir Karamuza. A prominent Russian opposition leader, Vladimir, who's a dual British and Russian national, has been imprisoned since April 2022 for protesting the war on Ukraine. And in April 2023, he was sentenced to 25 years in prison. We spoke to Evgenia about her husband's campaigning, his arrest, detention, and the brutal realities of Vladimir Putin's regime. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. If we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job. Slava Ukraini! Nobody's gonna break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Wednesday, the 6th of December, one year and 285 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by Associate Editor Dominic Nichols, Assistant Comment Editor Francis Sternley, and our guest is Evgenia Karamurza. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. Well, thanks, David. And hi, everybody. Here we go. Very warm welcome to the Telegraph. So last night, Russia launched 48 uh, drones uh, in an overnight attack from southern Russia into into Ukraine, also from Crimea. Uh, this is from officials in Kiev. These were uh, Shahid 131 and 136 drones that we are used to uh, reporting. The Air Force, Ukrainian Air Force, said it had shot down 41 of those 48, but no further details about where the other seven landed or any casualties there. Down in the south, the, the bridgehead on the, the left bank of the Dnipro River, the east bank that we've talked about for some time now, instituted a study of war today saying that, that Ukraine has established another position in the Belarudny area, the Belarudny Island, which is about 5k southwest of Herzon City. So that whole area now, it's expanding. And I'm, I'm, I made the point yesterday with Conrad, I'm... I'm Surprised, given the nature of the terrain there, these little rivulets and tiny little islands, lots of water, it's actually quite difficult to to move from. You know, it's very easy. It should be fairly easy for a a capable military to repel that kind of attack. So I'm I'm surprised and impressed that that the bridgehead is expanding. Anyway, ISW says that geolocated footage on the 30th of November and then other footage from the 1st and 3rd of December, so earlier this week says Ukrainian forces or showed Ukrainian forces were engaging Russian positions in the settlement Bilodovi. And that was also backed up by a Russian mill blogger who says that positions there are, um, are, being, are in contact. Now, we think Ukrainian, it's the elements of three brigades of Ukrainian Marines that, are crossed the, um, that have crossed the river. That was from a, a background brief I had with Western official a couple of weeks ago. But as for the actual size, we're not exactly sure, but elements from three brigades. Separately, Ukrainian forces um, have conducted successful drone strikes against Russian military targets in occupied Crimea. That was overnight on Monday, Tuesday, but the, only, the news only broke uh, yesterday in the Ukrainian media. They were citing sources in Ukraine's main military intelligence directorate, the GUR, and the security service, the SBU. They say that GUR and the SBU elements struck a Russian military oil terminal in Fyodosia. That's the far southeast corner of Crimea. They also hit a Neva M uh, radar system just west of the Kirsch Bridge, just about 5Ks west of the bridge, and also a helicopter landing pad, a Terek radar system, and a Baikal 1M anti aircraft missile control system elsewhere across Crimea. No locations given for those. Russian sources, including their MOD, 
say that Russian air defences and EW, electronic warfare systems, as well as small arms, downed 35 Ukrainian drones in those areas and across the Sea of Azov overnight. Another group of Russian sources, including the Herzon Oblast occupation head Vladimir Saldo, said that Russian air defences had shot down 41 drones over northern Crimea and the Sea of Azov, and they were assessing, they say that Ukraine were, was attempting to hit Russian air defence systems and fuel storage facilities. I just made the point that these, these things aren't attacked just for the, the sake of it. It's not, it's not Ukraine just deciding what to do today with their drones. This is all about shaping the, the battlefield for future operations and preventing those elements from assisting the effort further forward. So oil facilities, radar sites and so on and so forth. So that activity, plus the ongoing fight in the, in the Black Sea, which um, is enabling commercial grain supplies to get out in ever-increasing numbers, I think that, that shows why it's wrong to look at the lack of ground movement and say, oh, there's a stalemate, nothing's happening in the war. So you, you hear this narrative about stalemate. And uh, Professor Timothy Snyder spoke about, about the, why that's such a false term. We, should, we really shouldn't be talking about it. Um, but, yeah, I'll just, just make the point that there, there is a lot going on. War is much bigger than just one small area of ground. Now, the next one. President Zelensky has been speaking to the public. He told Ukrainians that Kyiv would defeat Russia and win a fair peace against all odds, his words. He delivered his message in a fairly quirky but unusual early morning video that showed him walking through Kyiv. He's just filming himself on his phone on his way to pay his respects to fallen soldiers on, well, today's Ukraine's Armed Forces Day. But he said it has been difficult, but we have persevered. He was walking from his office towards central Kyiv's wall of remembrance. He said, it's not easy now, but we are moving. No matter how difficult it is, we will get there to our borders, to our people, to our peace, a fair peace, free peace against all odds. And just finally, outside the country, the Moscow Times has reported that the number of Russian soldiers contacting a group which assists deserters has almost doubled in the last three months. So the Idit Lesom group, which translates as get lost, says it received 577 requests for assistance between September and November, an increase of 89% from um, the figures in June to August. So Sergei Kravenko, who's the uh, director of a group called Citizen Army Rights, a human rights group, said servicemen see that there is no rotation, as in not, not moving away from the front line, they're just getting no rest. Servicemen see there's no rotation, that even seriously wounded men are sent back to the front after being hospitalised. And then Grigory Sverdlin, Idait Lessem's leader, said most soldiers who attempt to desert have previously been wounded and are, and are not being looked after and are not being rotated back out for, the, uh, for their wounds to heal. And I'll take a pause there, David. Thank you so much, Tom. Francis Durnley, what have you been looking at over the past 24 hours? Well, thank you, David, and it is a privilege to have Mrs Karamurza with us here in the studio today. Real drama unfolded in the US Congress last night as Zelensky cancelled last minute that classified briefing to US senators on Ukraine. As we reported, Zelensky had been due to update the senators on the latest developments in the conflict and urge them to support a procedural vote expected Wednesday on that emergency aid package, which includes more than $60 billion for Kyiv. Now, that cash, as listeners will know, has been held up for weeks now by the disputing Congress, despite the White House warning that existing funds will run out by the end of the year and that Putin could win if the law and war uh, it failed to change. No, no information was given for the cancellation. We've been trying to get to the bottom of it here, but without anything verifiable. The briefing apparently descended into a row over the US border crisis. Mitt Romney left early, confirming that a number of his Republican colleagues had followed suit, angry that they'd heard nothing on their demand that Ukraine aid be coupled with action on the migrant crisis at the US-Mexico border. So those dissident Republicans were potentially going to be persuaded to back Ukraine if there were changes around the US-Mexico policy. That was what it was in play, but it seems that they stormed out after the cancellation. This is damaging, suffice to say, at a time when certain US congressmen are sceptical about Ukraine and its leadership. It's hard to see what could have been more important politically in Zelensky's diary than talking to them. But we understand he will be joining a video summit later today with the leaders of the G7. But those talks will cover more than just the war, but the Middle East, support for developing countries and AI. It's just not as pressing. 
Now, as previously discussed, many European leaders are pleading the US publicly and privately not to reduce its military support to Ukraine. They believe that Washington is key to all this, especially given that Europe has not yet mobilised all of the resources it promised to support Kyiv. The former British Prime Minister, David Cameron, will make his first visit to D.C., as Foreign Secretary later to discuss this very subject, also announcing a £37 million of humanitarian funding for Ukraine. Closer to home, Western leaders are trying to prevent further political damage to Ukraine's cause. Emmanuel Macron of France will meet Viktor Orban of Hungary ahead of the Crunch EU summit next week that will determine whether Ukraine's accession talks, as greenlit by the European Commission a few weeks back, is formally approved and that matters can begin. The support of every EU head of state is required for that to go ahead. And Orban remains a real obstacle on this, as we've discussed. A French government source told Politico that Macron believes he can convince Mr Orban to support Ukraine's accession, but it's not guaranteed. And the headlines, if Hungary vetoes it, would be very damaging internationally for Ukraine. Now, turning to Moscow, Putin has just arrived in the United Arab Emirates, declaring that relations between Russia and the UAE are at an unprecedented high, his term, at a meeting with the country's president. Just for a bit of context, Russia and the UAE cooperate as part of OPEC Plus and are involved in major oil and gas projects. Joe Barnes is reporting on this for us. There is a serious concern in the West that this relationship has become a sort of sanctions-busting hub for oil and money emanating from Moscow. Both Britain and the EU have dispatched diplomats to ensure the tens of thousands of Russians who have poured into Dubai are not using it as a springboard to evade Western sanctions. The UAE, of course, at the moment is hosting the COP28 climate change summit in Dubai, and it has insisted that it restricts the export and re-export of dual-use products that could be used for military purposes to conflict zones. UK, US and EU officials have held talks with the UAE on this very issue, as well as Turkey and Kazakhstan, in an effort to close down alternative routes for Russia to secure computer chips and electronic components for battlefield use, something we know has been an impediment for Russian forces on the battlefield. So we'll be monitoring this, suffice to say, um, but it is, of course, anxious, particularly at a time when the Middle East is so febrile. Obviously, we've got the Saudi meeting that will follow this one and we'll be covering that tomorrow. Now, uh, just before we wrap up, staying on Putin's image management in the Middle East, it was announced after our broadcast yesterday that six Ukrainian children will be returned home from Russia in a deal brokered by Qatar. Listeners will recall it's the second part of that Qatar-mediated deal for the return of young people after four minors were returned in October. Whilst the return of any child is obviously welcome, it's really important to remember that most experts believe this is carefully stage-managed in an attempt to alleviate the charges of war crimes against Putin and his acolytes. Over 19,000 children remain missing. And as we've heard on the podcast, the real figure is likely to be much higher. And the reality of life for children in Russia is, of course, widespread indoctrination, not just of those kidnapped Ukrainians in special camps, which we've covered at length, but also Russian children themselves, not just in textbooks, but there's been a widely circulated video doing the rounds this week, reportedly filmed at a technical college in the Siberian city of Tomsk, showing Russian children shooting portraits of Zelensky, Joe Biden and NATO head Jens Stoltenberg. I'm surprised Rishi Sunak didn't make the cut. We've reported many times the rather hysterical propaganda pumped out by Russian state media. Who can forget that pundit who told Brits to pray for our moss-covered queen and that Russia had invented fish and chips? But as further evidence of the tensions, Putin apparently snubbed the new British ambassador as he kept his distance from a gathering of foreign diplomats. He said, unfortunately, for sanitary reasons, we cannot talk more and socialise. He said from over 70 feet away, I hope that better times will come, not only in politics, but also in healthcare, And we will be able to do so. He then added that he hoped for a change for the better in relations between London and Moscow. It's all rather bizarre, to be honest, and we'll do little to dismiss rumours that he isn't keen to meet new people if he can possibly help it, whether due to ill health, paranoia or simple distrust. 
But it's not really surprising, is it, given the current context? But that's where we are in the political realm, David. Well, thank you very much, Dom and Francis, for talking us through all of that. Um, Evgenia, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a real honour to meet you and to welcome you to the studio. Would you start just by um, telling us a little bit about your, your and your husband's work in Russia? Hello, David, and uh, I, I want to thank you and Dominic and Francis for having me here today. Um, it is truly important for me to be able to carry on with Vladimir's work, to continue my husband's work of opposing the regime in the Kremlin and of uh, making sure that the voices of those Russian citizens who were, were speaking against the regime and against the war in Ukraine are being heard around the world. So thank you very much for giving me this platform. I am sitting here today with you and uh, Vladimir is um, in a uh, punishment cell of the maximum security prison in Siberia where he was put upon his transfer uh, to this uh, prison colony uh, in Omsk. And he hasn't left that punishment cell since September. Even under the Russian law, a person cannot be held in a punishment cell for over two weeks, not to mention the fact that Vladimir is suffering from polyneuropathy, something that he developed following the two assassination attacks that he was lucky enough to survive. Under the Russian law, a person suffering from polyneuropathy should not be incarcerated at all. But that, of course, does not uh, bother the Russian authorities that use all methods of repression against anti-war protesters and anti-Putin protesters in the country. And those methods include punitive psychiatry, regular torture, physical and sexual violence, and absolutely mind-boggling prison terms, like in the case of my husband going up to 25 years of incarceration for speaking against Vladimir Putin's policies, for speaking against the Russian government and calling for the establishment of a of an international tribunal to bring all those responsible for the act of aggression and war crimes committed in Ukraine to responsibility. Evgenia, can you take us back to um, April 2022 and his arrest? What happened? What was the sequence of events? Well, Vladimir was supposed to travel back to the U.S. to celebrate Easter with us, with, with our kids. And he was uh, detained basically on the eve of his departure. And he was placed in, in detention. First, initially, he was given those uh, 15 days of detention. Uh, that was the time that the authorities used to build up a case against him. And Vladimir was charged under this new legislation for spreading so-called false information about the war in Ukraine for his public opposition to the war and for calling for the establishment of the International Tribunal and denouncing the war crimes committed by the Russian army. Then he was also accused of being affiliated with a non-desirable organization that I myself represent and proudly represent. It's called the Free Russia Foundation and it is a civil society organization that does everything it can to develop and support all kinds of pro-democracy and anti-war civil initiatives launched by Russian citizens in and outside of the country. Vladimir was also declared a foreign agent, basically to portray him as a spy, so-called spy. And uh, uh, to top it all, he was also accused of high treason for making three speeches on different international platforms, talking about uh, spreading political repression in Russia, the ever-growing number of political prisoners in the Russian Federation, calling the regime of Vladimir Putin illegitimate after the so-called 2020 referendum that basically destroyed the country's constitution and made Vladimir Putin a czar forever, and uh, for talking about the lack of uh, access by the Russian population to the independent media and the importance of providing the Russian population with objective, independent information about the war in Ukraine and Putin's domestic policies. All these, I mean, Vladimir received 25 years, all these accusations combined. And his case is very illustrative of the situation with human rights in Russia in general, I must say. All these accusations are being used in other cases as well on a regular basis. Every day we hear about new detentions, new accusations and new trials being held in Russia against anti-war and anti-Putin protesters. And uh, uh, just to illustrate, a couple of weeks ago, 
a Russian artist and pacifist, Alexandra Sasha Skochelenko, was sentenced to seven years in prison for replacing price tags at a local supermarket with anti-war messages. And two days before her sentencing, um, a certain Sergei Hadzikurbanov, who had been serving a prison sentence for his role in the assassination of prominent Russian journalist Anna Politkovska, was pardoned by Vladimir Putin for serving after serving in Ukraine. So two Russian citizens, but representing such different Russias. And what I uh, mean to say is that there are tens of thousands of people detained for the opposition to the current regime. And it is important to hear their voices and to recognize their fight and to understand that Vladimir Putin is in fact leading two wars at the same time. One is a criminal war of aggression against Ukraine and another one is a criminal war against Russian civil society and against our country's future, our country's democratic future. And I believe that it is truly important to recognize the fight of these people because the only acceptable alternative to the current regime in the Kremlin should be a democratic Russia. And that is the only Russia that will no longer represent a threat to itself and all our neighbors. Evgeny, you mentioned the punishment cells that your husband is in. What more can you tell us about these prison colonies? We've mentioned them quite a few times on this podcast when we're talking about these stories of, of activists and politicians who've been detained and imprisoned. Um, can you explain for our audience what these places are like? You know, it's it's hard to imagine it. I, I'm sitting here in the UK, uh, a democratic country based on the respect for um, human rights and the rule of law. And I have to describe something so atrocious to people who have their rights respected, who have access to independent justice system, who have access to independent media, who can choose who they're going to be voting for, who they want uh, them to represent them. It's so a punishment cell. Imagine a cell that measures three meters by a couple of meters. The bed is affixed to the wall from morning till night. There is one backless stool as the only piece of furniture in that cell. Water is usually cold. There is often no heating. Uh, some prisoners are um, luckier than others. They have, they might have heating, or they might have um, warm, lukewarm water. In the faucet, people in punishment cells only get 90 minutes a day of reading or writing. So any anything, any letters, any um, requests that Vladimir wants to write, so he gets this pen and paper for 90 minutes a day. Whatever he has time to do within those 90 minutes, that's it. No, not much. Else. He gets uh, uh, 90 minutes of walking a day in the small courtyard. He's completely isolated from everyone. He doesn't have any phone rights, any visitation rights. He hasn't spoken to his kids in many, many months. He only gets to see his lawyer about once a week. And I consider my husband lucky. And it's, it's truly Kafkaesque. It's truly surreal to even think about it. He is in prison for having committed no crime at all. And I'm grateful that he gets to see his lawyer once a week. But it is what it is. Other than that, uh, he's, he's completely isolated even from other prisoners as well in that punishment block within the maximum security prison in Siberia. His is the only occupied cell. He doesn't even have, uh, there, there are no people even in the neighboring cells. I don't know why it is being done, but I know that the, the prison authorities, when Vladimir was brought to this uh, prison colony, told him plainly that he would not be let out of solitary confinement because they didn't want him to contaminate the minds of other prisoners. And in a way, they're right. Vladimir would. Because when he was kept in a prison cell with five other guys in Moscow, in a Moscow detention center, it took him a few weeks to completely convert an entire cell of people. And at the end of that period, they were all discussing the war in Ukraine, the situation in Russia, and they switched from uh, watching uh, propaganda on TV because every prison cell in Russia has a TV set. 
Even behind bars, people cannot be let alone. Propaganda has to continuously contaminate the minds of people to be this continuous poison that these people are subject to. And uh, so it took Vladimir just a few weeks to explain to these people the actual situation. So, of course, he would do the same. And uh, his is not the only case. Punishment cells are being used as uh, a torture mechanism against many anti-war activists in Russia. And from what I see, and I am following many cases of political prisoners in Russia, punishment cells are often used in the cases in which people are already suffering from some medical, serious medical conditions, like Vladimir is suffering from polyneuropathy. There is the case of Alexei Gorinov. He is uh, missing part of his lung and he very often ends up in a punishment cell. There is Evgeny Bistuzhev. There is Alexei Navalny who is basically living in a punishment cell for many months and uh, other such cases. So we see that basically what the the regime is doing is slowly killing these people because, of course... Behind bars and in these punishment cells, these people have no access to proper medical care. And the regime does not just kill them by just hitting them on the head, but they're slowly killing them, putting them in such conditions in which these people can hardly survive for a very long time. May I ask, when was the last time you were able to communicate with your husband and what do you hear from him? Well, we still have this uh, method of online, um, not on, I want to explain, Vladimir, of course, has no access to internet or to anything, actually. He has the right to keep two books in his prison cell, and he has those 90 minutes of handwriting his messages. Um, and But these messages can then be sent through an online prison correspondence system. They go through censorship. And then I either receive or do not receive them. I can send him messages through the same system and then these messages are printed out and brought to him and he gets to read them within this 90-minute time frame and, uh, again, whatever he can read within this time frame. And this is a very sad progress from the Soviet times when Soviet political prisoners did not have that luxury of being able to communicate with the outside world. But, of course, I have to stress yet again that everything goes through censorship. So no sensitive information can, of course, be passed uh, through those uh, channels. And also the authorities get to decide whether you can be given this right or whether this right of communicating with your loved ones uh, will be taken away from you. And very often prisoners are denied the right uh, to uh, have correspondence with their family members just as a method of uh, pressure and a method of torture as well. Following the uh, many months of pressure from the international community, Vladimir was given... Well, actually, it had been uh, over a year since his uh, imprisonment in April 2022. Uh, Vladimir was uh, given the right to a few very short phone calls with his kids. Those calls were 10 to 15 minutes long. We have three kids, so five minutes per kid. We had six such phone calls over last summer, but that was it. Since then, Vladimir was moved to a maximum security prison in Siberia, and we have not been able to talk to him since. You mentioned that he has the right to two books in his cell. Do you know what books he chose? I know that he recently reread Solzhenitsyn, then another one, uh, another author that is very, very popular among political prisoners, Russian political prisoners today, is uh, Natan Sheransky former uh, Soviet dissident and refusenik and a very prominent Israeli statesman. Another a book that is very seems to be very popular among Russian political prisoners are the memoirs by Vladimir Bukovsky. Well, sadly, all those books written by Soviet dissidents have become sort of survival manuals for today's political prisoners in Russia. Evgenia, just one more question from me before I hand over to um, Francis and Dom. Um, Could you explain, could you talk about why he stayed in Russia? He knew he was in danger. Uh, You mentioned he was, um, the the Kremlin tried to poison him twice already. Um, Why did he stay? Vladimir um, 
There is no simpler way to explain it than to say that he is a true, genuine patriot of his country. And uh, Vladimir is many things. He is a filmmaker, a writer, a historian, a journalist. But first and foremost, he has always identified himself as a Russian politician. So to him, in his view, he would not have the moral right to call on his compatriots to continue resisting, to continue opposing the regime if he himself were at a safe distance. He believed that he needed to share the same risks and challenges faced by Russians back home. And he wanted to show... There was this story actually involving Vladimir Bukovsky. Several years ago, uh, Vladimir Bukovsky agreed to run for president to put forward his candidature in the elections in Russia. That was many years ago. I think it was uh, 2009 or 2007. I'm very bad with dates, but that was uh, a while ago. And uh, he hadn't been involved in uh, politics for a very long time before that. And when he came to Russia and began talking to people there, I remember someone asked him, well, why did you decide to come back after so many years of not having been involved in any way in Russian politics? And he said, and that I believe that that uh, stroke very close with Vladimir, something that he really could relate to. He said, I felt that people were getting scared again and I needed to come back to stand by their side and say, look, I'm here and I'm not scared. And I believe very much that over these years, despite all this assassination attacks, despite persecution, despite this absolutely atrocious sentence of a quarter of a century for telling the truth, this message, I am not scared, has been pushing Vladimir forward. And it's, uh, I believe that honestly, I can relate to that way of standing up to bullies because the only way to deal with bullies is to show to them that you're not scared. And I am truly proud of having such an amazing partner and such an amazing example for our kids to follow. And I will continue fighting by his side for as long as it takes. Evgenia, thank you so much for your time. And we've been reporting on your husband's case now for many months. And it's an extraordinary story. I suppose the first question I wanted to ask is there's so much speculation about the strength of Putin's regime in Russia. Of course, there are a lot of questions asked about it following the Pogosian mutiny. What's your assessment of how secure Putin is at present? Do you think there is a chance that actually things are more fragile than they appear, at least as far as many people are concerned around the world? Well, I'm not a political analyst to go into this uh, subject profoundly in depth. But to me, the, the wave of repression, the level of repression used against dissenters within the country shows that this regime is truly paranoid. The fact that no alternative candidatures are allowed in any kind of elections in the country shows again that the regime is truly paranoid. The fact is, it is quite strong because it uses such strong methods of repression. And uh, the fear that I'm sure is reigning in the country um, is quite understandable if you try to put yourself in the shoes of those people who are facing the regime back back home. You know, it's when I hear about cases of uh, punitive psychiatry, like, for example, in the case of Maria Panamarenka, a journalist who was sentenced to many years in prison for making an online post about the theater bombing in Mariupol by the Russian forces. So after spending several months in detention, she was transferred to a so-called psychiatric hospital for evaluation. And she 
after she was able to, after she was transferred back to the detention center, was able to talk to her lawyer, she said that she could not recollect three whole days of her so-called stay at that hospital because she was under the influence of unknown substances and she didn't, she didn't even know what she was injected with. Or another case is uh, the case of Anatoly Berezikov, a musician and an activist in Rostov-on-Don. He was arrested several months ago for putting up flyers of the Ukrainian project I Want to Live that helps Russian soldiers surrender. That man was repeatedly beaten up in detention. And one day when his lawyer came to visit him in the detention center in Rostov-on-Don, she saw his body being carried out. And because she possesses the pictures of uh, electroshock marks on his body, she believes that he could have been tortured to death. That man at his trial kept saying that he was afraid that his name would just disappear, that he was just, you know, he would never be even remembered. So I go around the world, world telling his story because I believe that his voice the voice of a Russian citizen who also wanted to live has to be remembered and his story is worth telling. And I come across these absolutely atrocious uh, cases on a daily basis. And I understand the fear. I understand why the regime is using such repressive mechanisms against dissenters because they want to, yes, intimidate some and silence others. And if the, uh, the, the, if there were no opposition in the country, the regime would not be using such repressive mechanisms because if there is no opposition, I mean, no dissent, let's say, because opposition is quite a political term. And in political sense, we do not have opposition in the country because there are no, polit- there are no political forces, united political forces of opposition in the country. There are no opposition candidates in the elections. The Russian population has not had access to free and independent, free and fair elections since 2003. That's over 20 years of stolen elections. So let's call it dissent. But if there were no dissent in the country, the regime would not be using such atrocious mechanisms of repression because if there is no dissent, who to use these mechanisms against? And I believe that the reason the regime is going so atrociously, so so cruelly after dissenters in Russia is because it wants to annihilate that, that alternative that does exist in the country. And it wants also to show to the world, to this warped image of reality in which the entire Russian population, the entire 140-something million people, stand strongly supporting Vladimir Putin and the war in Ukraine. And this has nothing to do with reality. And I believe that the voices of those who run impossible risks to say no to the regime need to be heard Because, as I already said, the only acceptable alternative should be a democratic Russia. And I believe that it bears repeating that what we're seeing today, the aggressive war against Ukraine, repression in Russia, and all those dictators coming together and putting their efforts together to stand against the free world, this is the result of almost a quarter of a century of impunity that the regime has been enjoying while committing the same types of crimes over the years. Let's not forget that the full-scale invasion of Ukraine is not the first act of aggression against Ukraine. There was the annexation of Crimea in 2014. So the war against Ukraine really began in 2014. And before that, there was the invasion of Georgia. And even before that, there were political assassinations in the country, like the murder of Anna Politkovskaya, whom I mentioned today. And the regime has been using political assassination as a method of dealing with dissenters, with opposition activists and politicians for years. Boris Nemtsov was assassinated, what, 100 meters away from the Kremlin walls in 2015. The, what just, if we take just one media outlet, Novaya Gazeta, it lost six journalists to political assassinations over the course of these years, of the course of Vladimir Putin's rule. My husband was targeted twice for assassination and uh, both times he ended up in a coma with a multiple organ failure, was lucky to survive. And uh, Alexei Navalny 
was poisoned as well. And we now know, thanks to an independent investigation by Bellingcat and the insider in the Spiegel, that it was this same team of assassins in the service of the Russian state, the same team of FSB operatives who had been following both Vladimir and Alexei and actually Boris Nemtsov before his assassination. So Vladimir Putin and his regime, his system, they've been doing this for years. And for years, he was allowed to get away with this because there was a resetting of relations time and again. Had these sanctions, had these strong response been imposed after the annexation of Crimea, the war, the full-scale invasion would never have happened. So I think that it bears repeating that Vladimir Putin should not be allowed to get away with yet another such crime. He should be brought to justice. There should be no question of any type of negotiations between Ukraine and Russia unless they happen on Ukraine's terms. And the Ukraine's victory on Ukraine's conditions is truly important if we want to have lasting, solid peace in the region. Thank you. And as you say, in a sense, lessons were missed historical lessons were missed. And I've listened to many speeches and read many pieces by your husband. He was also a trained historian at Cambridge. Um, so it's very bizarre to me to feel that he used to walk around the same places that were so familiar to me for many years. He spoke passionately about the role of history in his decision to go back to Russia. I just wondered if you could reflect on some of the things that he said about Russia's trajectory, Russian history, and challenging some of the notions that you've touched on, that Russia is by nature an autocratic country, that actually there is so much more to Russia than perhaps the conception? Um, well, uh, first of all, I just I believe that talking about any people in the world, in terms of its uh, genetic indisposition to democracy is truly a faulty narrative and should not be allowed in a civilized world in the 21st century. And I, I don't even want to go into um, examples like two Koreas, um, the same uh, um, people genetically, but one is a democratic uh, country and another one is an absolutely atrocious dictatorship. But it's in the words of it's, it's just Vladimir has talked about this at length over the years. And there is no question that part of the responsibility for Vladimir Putin growing into this monster that we're witnessing today lies with the Russian people, lies with the fact that we should have been stronger in opposing him, lies with the fact that certain um, bad mistakes were made after the collapse of the Soviet Union in the early 1990s, not even late 19, but early 1990s, right after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Certain mistakes were made and had these mistakes been avoided, the trajectory might have been different. And Vladimir actually wrote an excellent piece on that subject for the Washington Post that was published a few months ago. And uh, I uh, encourage you to read this. Um, and he specifically just talks about the mistakes made in the 1990s as a historian. And I don't know how he manages to keep that information in his head with no access to... I don't know. I, I, I know that I'm married to a genius, but the, the fact... The way he writes, the way he talks about these things, it's truly convincing because he operates with facts. He's not trying to distort them. He's not trying to misrepresent them. He's just laying out the facts and encourages you to make the conclusions. So it's all very clear. And uh, the fact that there was no understanding after the collapse of the Soviet Union, the major mistake, according to Vladimir that was made back then was that there was no no recognition of the past crimes of the crimes committed by the Soviet regime there were no public trials there were no illustration so the majority of the population never really was made not aware i think the entire country realized that half of the country were victims and half were prosecuting these, uh, persecuting these victims. 
Um, but at the same time, there should have been some public recognition of those crimes, some public denunciation of these crimes. And without that, that work, one cannot really hope to build anything new, let alone democratic. And this is what this is the mistake that we cannot afford making again. Uh, of course, the current regime cannot be transformed into any democratic system. The current regime was built by Vladimir Putin. It represents a very personalized vertical of power. And uh, it is not when I'm talking about Vladimir Putin, they need, need to bring him to responsibility. I, of course, do not mean just him. It is this entire structure that is deeply intrinsically corrupt and absolutely criminal and it needs to be completely dismantled and we need those public trials and that public recognition of the crimes committed by this regime this sort of re the the process of thinking about this of understanding what was done we needed just as much as ukrainians need the international tribunal to bring those responsible for the act of aggression and war crimes committed there both things will be needed to if we want to take russia to a better place one day evgenia do you think enough people in the west or outside russia enough people in the right places get it now and see Putin and the system he's created for what it is? Or do you think there's still a worrying, maybe a minority, but a sizable minority that want to do a deal and want to save his face and want to negotiate and, and are thinking about dealing with a, a, a post-Ukraine war, Putin still in place? Well, honestly, uh, whenever I hear a narrative like this, it makes me furious. For the first few months after the full-scale invasion had broken out, there was this amazing solidarity in the West, in the democratic, not just in the West, but in the global democratic community to support Ukraine and do everything to bring nearer its victory. But time passes and it's almost been two years. And I understand that there is this tiredness. I understand. I can tell you that I am so, so very tired. Sometimes I find it hard to get out of bed in the morning. I am tired going to bed and waking up with the thought of having my loved one, the father of my children, being locked away in a prison cell, locked away by the same people who tried to assassinate him twice. I am tired. But I also understand that if... The regime is allowed to get away with the crimes it's been committing, then the war will continue. I understand this because we've seen this happen in the past. And time and again, Vladimir Putin was allowed to get away with the invasion of Georgia, with the annexation of Crimea, with the bombings of civilian population in Syria. He proceeded a little bit further. Because in his warped mind, if he can commit war crimes in Chechnya or in Syria, why can't he do the same in Ukraine? If he can annex Crimea why, and part of Georgia, why can't he annex the rest of Ukraine? It's, it's, it's logical. So in order for that to stop, he needs to be stopped. It's, it's as simple as that. And I do understand the tiredness. But I also understand that for as long as this regime is allowed to survive, warmongering will continue. And everything needs to be done to, to end the war and bring this regime to responsibility. So I, I hear narratives about sanctions being ineffective. Well, that is wrong. Sanctions are effective. But the problem is that Russian authorities find ways to circumvent these sanctions. So maybe... Approaches should be developed to make sure that they're not able to circumvent these sanctions, to avoid these sanctions, uh, rather than declaring sanctions an ineffective mechanism. We have Magnitsky sanctions, an absolutely revolutionary mechanism to bring to responsibility those specific human rights violators. 
they should be used and they should be used to a wide extent and they should not be lifted when and I've seen such cases happen when sanctions are being lifted off someone who has clear connections to the Kremlin. That I cannot understand, really, as it's just it's why. So I believe that everything should be done to continue supporting Ukraine, uh, not to just maintain the status quo, but to make sure that Ukraine wins this war on Ukraine's terms. And that will be a strong message both to the Kremlin and to the Russian civil society, to Ukraine, to the world, that those responsible for such crimes will be brought to justice and that the only Russia that the international community, the global democratic international community will accept is a democratic Russia. Thank you. And just one final one for me. I think David's going to move us to final thoughts in a moment. But in your travels around European capitals, and you're in, obviously in London today, are you hearing the right messages? Are you getting encouraging signs from, well, very specifically from our foreign office? When you talk to people, um, mostly they use the right words and the right messages. It's the action that sometimes lack, lacks. And with regard to my relations with the FCDO, I am very grateful for all the public statements made by uh, the UK ambassador to Russia, by uh, uh, the UK prime minister. I am grateful for the attention that they pay Vladimir's case on a continuous basis. But I believe that there is a, a sort of a... There is something that could be improved. There is definitely space for improvement because for years the approach of the UK government to cases of hostages or political imprisonment of its national citizens was to not engage. In a world where the number of political prisoners and hostages continues to grow, where the governments engage or not engage. It is, uh, I, I believe that this, this approach is truly a wrong one because by not engaging, by not using certain methods of getting people out of prisons, the UK government sends a very bad message to those UK citizens in prisons elsewhere. And that message is, bad luck, you're on your own. We will make statements, but you, I'm afraid, we're afraid you're going to have to continue being kept behind bars. And that is not the message that families want to hear. And that is not the message that those uh, people behind bars want to hear. And I believe that this approach should change. And um, my visit here to the UK actually coincides with a visit to the UK by the US um, special presidential envoy on for hostage affairs. The US has a, an office for hostage affairs and uh, Ambassador Roger Carsons is the current presidential envoy for hostage affairs, which means that this country is thinking and actually um, using all the methods of freeing those American citizens held elsewhere by despotic regimes and, well, basically to, to save lives. And I believe that the only acceptable response in a democratic world in the 21st century would be to bring together efforts to do this on a more comprehensive, a more concerted basis. Because look at these dictators. They work together. They seem to be using each other's tactics. They seem to adopt each other's methods. So the only response of the democratic community should be to work together as well to counter such practices. And although the establishment of such offices around other countries in the world would help these countries bring together their efforts to solve the existing cases, like that of my husband and so many other British citizens held in prisons in, uh, in authoritarian countries. I believe that the ultimate goal of such offices or 
positions, I don't know, be it an envoy, a representative, whatever you call such a person, the ultimate goal will be to work together to develop some tactics, to develop some approaches to prevent such practices from being used in the first place. Because this is what needs to be stopped. Those uh, autocratic regimes should be stopped from using people as their, what is the, um, um, the pieces? Horns. Yes. 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 Yes, exactly. Uh, Well, like hostages. So this is what needs to be done. And I believe uh, that it is important to support such an initiative. Evgenia, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for coming into the studio. Let's move to our final thoughts then. We'll come to you last, of course. Dom or Francis, would, who would like to go first? Sure, I'll go ahead, David. So Francis mentioned earlier on that Putin's arrived in the United Arab Emirates for the COP28. He received a very warm welcome and a, a motorcade and a fly past and all the rest of it. Listeners may or may not be aware that the UAE is currently backing the firm that's seeking ownership of the Telegraph and if that sale went through, it just I wonder whether or not journalism such as Ukraine The Latest would be supported by owners who are so close to Putin. If anyone has any thoughts on this and wishes to make those thoughts known to the paper, then we would welcome your letters at dtletters at telegraph.co.uk. You can write letters to the editor there, and if there's enough of them, you might get them printed and keep the conversation going. Thanks, David. Thank you very much, Tom. Francis Sternley. Thank you. I would just echo those concerns and do please write in and let the editors know what you think are about the podcast and also uh, about our concerns on the UAE matter. I, it's been an extraordinary talking to Evgenia today and a real privilege, but I just wanted to end to thank those listeners who've reached out to us following our conversation with Conrad Musica yesterday. There have been some really interesting emails and comments. And I wanted to quote from one, which I think is really important to remember at this rather pessimistic moment. So I'm quoting now. I believe that the tone of the interviewer presumes too much that the elements of the war that we see today may well be driving the war in the near or distant future. That is neither the nature of politics or of war. Politics by other means. The Russian mothers may yet have their say. Donald Trump may not end up as the Republican nomination in the US. There is even the possibility that Nikki Haley could conceivably win the nomination, and she is strong on the subject of Russia and Putin. The Russian economy may turn out to be far more fragile than the Western economists believe. They were totally wrong in the late 1980s when Russia was bankrupt. There are, in short, so many factors that are utterly unknowable. My optimism is yet to be dampened. As our colleague Roland says, reality throws up its own drama. Too many commentators, I think, have allowed themselves to assume certain aspects of this conflict are locked in and unchangeable. But as the listener says, that is not the nature of life nor of war. Remember the shock of the Prigozhin mutiny. Remember how Kiev held on against all odds in those early days and weeks in the war. Nothing is predestined. I just think it's very, very important that we remember that and remember our own agency at this precarious time. Thank you, Dom and Francis. Evgenia, would you like the very final words? Uh, Thank you again very much for the invitation. And I want to echo the words that were just read by Francis. It is, uh, and, you know, Vladimir always says that his optimism is not an optimism of a misinformed, a malinformed uh, person. It is an optimism of a historian who has seen this happen time and again in the history of the human civilization and in the history of Russia as well. And he always says that in Russia, changes often happen very abruptly. And we just need to be prepared for those changes. And we need to make sure there is an alternative when those changes do happen. And this is why I believe that support to that part of Russian civil society that continues resisting the regime both inside and outside of the country is truly important because if we want to see Russia a democracy, it is these people, including my husband, who will be there and will be willing to take up that absolutely crazy job of rebuilding a country from scratch and making it into a democracy. Thank you very much. 
Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our world affairs newsletter which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Charles Gear, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells.